that, that's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. In the middle of Central Park, there stands an angel. If you walk to the end of the long mall with its towering old oak trees forming a protective canopy above you, you'll find her. The Angel of Central Park stands guard above Bethesda Fountain at the foot of the elegantly sculpted brownstone steps and arches of the terrace that leads up to her. You can't help but stop and gaze at her. Her wings are outstretched to their majestic fullest. Her left hand carries a lily symbolizing purity, and her right hand is reaching out directly to us as if to offer us her support. She is officially known as the Angel of the Waters, and she first came to Central Park on a May day of 1873 and has become an iconic landmark for the city whose populace gathers at her feet. Generations of New Yorkers have come to her to sit below her on the fountain's edge, to ask lovers for a hand in marriage, or to try to feel some inkling of the power of healing that she symbolizes or to simply enjoy the beauty of a soft spring day. For the tiniest of children, it is a pure joy that brings them to her with laughter and giggles in anticipation of splashing their hands in the pool of water gently swirling at her feet. In a modern city sometimes criticized for being the least humane of environments in which to live, she stands strong above it all, an eternal symbol of support, solace, joy, contemplation, and indeed, healing for all who come together in her midst. This episode is ultimately the story of two women, an angel and the sculptor that created her. While the sculpture of the Angel of the Waters is known to so many New Yorkers and visitors, as is even parts of the story, that it was the first sculpture by a woman erected in public in the city, and that the sculptor was a woman who long before marriage equality established an enduring domestic partnership with another woman, while bits of these details may be known, there is much, much more to the story. With the work of a noted journalist, scholar, and author, we now have the fuller, richer canvas that makes up the story. This is in so many ways not a New York story at all, it's an Italian story, played out in the drawing rooms and artist studios of Rome in the mid-19th century. It's a love story of art and humanity that contains passion, betrayal, and like all good stories, even some mystery. As with many New York tales and legends, it's a play whose main characters may have ended up in New York, but whose fundamental story was played out far away and somewhere else.
I'm Carl Raymond, host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every other week we journey into worlds light and dark of America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. On a brisk January day in 1861, visitors to the New York branch of the prestigious Parisian-based gallery Goupil saw something they did not expect to see. The work of a young New York-born sculptor was on display in her first solo show. Emma Stebbins, the artist, had returned to New York from years away in Rome for this exceptional show of her work, which would later travel to Boston. Visitors and the press knew they were seeing something special, Several of her recent works were on display, including her first sculpture, The Lotus Eater, inspired by the famous Tennyson poem. It was hard for those 19th century viewers to accept that the works that they were seeing, with their strength and power, had been sculpted by a woman and not a man. Indeed, as quoted by the New York Times and by my guests today, what was before New Yorkers and indeed the American art community was the finest achievements in marble yet reached by female genius in Rome. And further, the Boston Press reported, the votes of the public are only the first encouragements of a future which opens before her full of promise. But just who was this young sculptor that had commanded the press? Who was Emma Stebbins? I could not be more honored to welcome author and noted journalist Maria Teresa Cometo to the Gilded Gentleman today. Through her meticulous research and linking together a puzzle with many jagged and even a few until now missing pieces, it is through her work and journalistic eye we are finally able to see the story. Maria Teresa Cometo is an Italian-American journalist and author based here in New York City. Originally from Novara, Italy, she has worked for the leading Italian daily newspaper Corriere della Sera for nearly 30 years. Her published work includes two earlier books and, most recently, Emma and the Angel of Central Park, recently published by Bordeghera Press, and it is that book that forms the basis of our conversation today. Maria Teresa, I could not be more delighted and truly honored to welcome you to the Gilded Gentleman. Sono così felice che lei è qui. Thank you so much, Carla. I am very happy and honored to be your guest. Thank you so much. You are so welcome. And truly, Maria Teresa, you are the only one who could really write this story. And I knew that from the very minute I heard about your project with your deep understanding of both Italian and American culture and the world of art, my listeners and your readers are grateful to you for finally sharing the story. So let's dive in. The statue of the Angel of the Waters at Bethesda Terrace at Central Park is is so iconic, and many people know it was sculpted by a woman and perhaps even a little bit of, of her story and her life, and we'll get into that. But what I really want to ask you right at the beginning here is what after all your research, most surprised you about the story or about Emma as you were writing the book? I would say that I was mostly surprised by the fact that nobody had written her biography before me. Uh, Nobody took the time and the patience to do some serious research about Emma. 
probably they thought uh, she was boring because she disappeared from uh, you know from the the, the public eye uh, pretty soon so they they didn't uh, understand that uh, instead her life was very her story was very exciting full of passion drama love betrayal even scandals and I think it would be a great movie or a TV show like uh, The Gilded Age. I think you should sell the movie rights to the book immediately, right? <laughs> it would be a one. I agree with you. So let's go back to the beginning here. So Emma was born in early 19th century New York, actually in, in 1815, very early. So what was her family like? And can you share a little bit about Emma's life as a young woman? What would have been expected of her growing up the way she did? Emma was lucky to be born in a wealthy family. Her father, John, was a bank manager. Her brothers, John Wilson and Henry, were Wall Street brokers. She had two other brothers and three sisters. They were rich, but they all loved also art and culture, especially Henry. He was the president of the New York Stock Exchange, but he, he was also a patron of the arts. He was the first supporter of Emma's artistic career. He was one of the founders of the Metropolitan uh, Museum of Art. He was uh, a senator in Washington, D.C. So Emma, like uh, all the other young women at that time, uh, was supposed just, you know, to maybe to go uh, to a school uh, to learn good manners, uh, to make a good impression uh, in uh, saloons and find the right husband. Instead, she was the only one of uh, her sisters not to get married. And uh, uh, you must think that at that time uh, there were not real high schools for girls and all the New York City universities did not admit women. So she must have shown her passion for art actually quite early, right? And how did she get her earliest trainings in art? Yes, she was uh, uh, lucky because one of uh, her brothers, uh, John Wilson, was the president of the Mercantile Library, the very first public library in New York City. And uh, uh, between 1831 and 34, the uh, library was hosted in Clinton Hall. And in the same building, there was also the National Academy of Design that was and still is the leading American Artist Association. First vice president of uh, uh, the National Academy of Design was uh, Henry Inman, who was famous for his uh, portraits. And uh, Inman painted Henry Stebbing's portrait that is uh, at the Met right now. And he invited Emma to his studio and offered her painting lessons. So the first training for Emma was copying from the masters, watercolors, oil painting, but then very soon she understood that her very passion was sculpture. At the same academy, she meets Augustus Brackett, the sculptor that later on would create the bust of John Brown. And uh, in 1842, Emma achieved her first uh, artistic uh, recognition. She was admitted as an associate member to the National Academy of Design. However, going further, Emma 
got discouraged. She was frustrated because there wasn't really a school for sculptures in New York City, not even in the whole United States. That's why at a certain point she decided to move abroad. Well, and that's an enormously important moment, as we shall see. So Emma travels to Rome, right, in the 1850s, which is really going to change her life in in so, so many ways. And and that's why, as I got into this, and I was so fascinated when I first heard you speak about this, this really is a very Italian story. It's something that's inspired by Italian art. So much of it actually takes place in Italy, not in New York. Actually, Emma did not sculpt in New York. So let's look at this from a couple of different angles. So when we really start to look at this, Maria Teresa, can you talk a little bit about what the art scene in Rome in the mid-19th century was when Emma arrives? What was going on in the art world at the time? The art scenes in the Rome under the popes, because we must remember that at that time Rome was not the capital of Italy, it was still under the popes. So uh, the art scene was very, very lively. It was the place uh, where to be for an artist. So many artists from uh, all over Europe and America uh, chose Rome for um, many different reasons. For sculptures, it was uh, the capital of neoclassicism. And neoclassicism was the style adopted by the young American Republic as the highest artistic expression of the values of freedom, democracy, on which the American Republic was founded. In Rome, Antonio Canova, the most important master of uh, uh, neoclassicism in sculpture, Canova was living and working in Rome until he died in uh, 1822. And um, a pupil of Canova was the famous uh, British sculpture John Gibson. And it is exactly with John Gibson that uh, Emma decided what was the theme of her first uh, statue. So if one wanted to study sculpture, Rome was the place to go at this point. Is that true? Is that a fair statement? Yes, absolutely. Um, Especially American sculptures had to go to Rome first for the school uh, to learn and train with the best uh, teachers. Also because in Rome they could study from um, the ancient masters, so the Greek and the Romans, visiting the Vatican museums, especially Braccio Nuovo, visiting the Capitoline museums, Villa Borghese, uh, Palazzo Barberini. And that's what Emma also did. Uh, there, is a, uh, there was another practical uh, reason. The American marble at that time was not fit for sculptures. While in Rome, of course, uh, you could get the marble from Carrara, the same that Michelangelo used for his uh, masterpieces. Also in Rome, there uh, were a lot of artisan uh, skilled carvers who would help the sculptures. And finally, uh, it was easier for American artists to sell their works to American tourists in Rome because American wealthy American tourists loved to buy art from uh, their American fellows and bring it home to show off uh, in their homes. Now, one of the most fascinating parts of this story to me was this community of female artists and female sculptors 
that Emma found in Rome when she got there in, in the 1850s. So can you talk a little bit about what this community was and how that began and developed? Yes, it was a very peculiar situation, never before and never afterwards. So many American women sculptors gathered together in the same city. The writer Henry James called them a strange sisterhood of American lady sculptors who, at one time, settled upon the seven hills in a white marmorian flock, unquote. More seriously, William Gertz, the foremost expert on American neoclassicism, explained that they formed a kind of, quote, unquote, movement. Quote, never before had so many women from one country achieved such relative prominence at one time in the field of sculpture, unquote. So there were eight American women sculptures in Rome at that time. The first one was Harriet Hosmer, who moved to Rome in 1852. Um, And then the last one was Winnie Riem, who moved to Rome in 1869. And Winnie Riem is the sculpture of the Abraham Lincoln full-body statue that is in the Rotunda in Washington, D.C., Between them, there were Louisa Lander, Edmonia Lewis, and Whitney, Florence Freeman, Margaret Foley, besides Emma Stebbings. So, for example, Hosmer, as I said, was the first one, and she was also a very good friend to Emma. She introduced Emma to her teachers, Gibson and also Paul Akers, and she was very bullient, very um, self-promoting, very good uh, with uh, marketing, uh, with journalists. Uh, She was also was dressed and behaved like a man. In fact, uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne, author of the Scarlet Letter, uh, when he met her in in his diaries, uh, wrote, oh, I'm not sure, Um, she looks like a a young man. So he was very surprised about that. Then uh, another interesting uh, artist was Edmonia Lewis, the only one of mixed blood. She was half Native American, half African American. And she has been recently uh, rediscovered herself. Uh, She had a statue recently at the Metropolitan Museum and the um, United States Postal Service issued a stamp in her honor last February. You know, that was one of the many, many great discoveries of your book for me was, was her work. And I would love to discover more about her. And I think she deserves her own show one day too, right? This was a place and a time where Emma could really express her same-sex affections. And we're going to talk shortly about her partner. But these passionate friendships between women were were very common in the 19th century. But this was a little different, something about this this community of female artists that, that chose partners but also actually lived as domestic couples, correct? Yes, absolutely. Besides uh, all the reason I mentioned earlier for American sculptures to go to Rome, for American women's sculptures, there was this additional reason. They were miles and miles away from their families, from, uh, you know, the uh, puritanical uh, uh, mentality. And so they were free to live really kind of a very bohemian kind of uh, life. And uh, many, actually four 
out of eight. So half of them, they lived with a partner, with another woman. It was common, as you said. Henry James uh, wrote the Boston marriage, uh, coined the the expression the Boston marriage. It was common... uh, either to simply live a chaste relationship with other women to uh, be, you know, uh, not alone. But this kind of relationship could go, I mean, to being a real lesbian uh, partnership. And Emma and her partner lived indeed like married, a married couple. And we will talk about that in just a moment. But with that, Maria Teresa and I are going to take a brief break but we'll be back to continue the story. You might not think that a few simple words could make you crave McDonald's breakfast sandwiches. But if you listen closely to the sound of me saying, McGriddles, McMuffin, you might be wrong. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Some people like to deep clean every Saturday morning. I prefer to spend a few minutes every day keeping things fresh with Lysol. Lysol's brand new day disinfecting wipes conveniently tackle surfaces, including remotes, tablets, and smartphones, killing 99.9% of viruses and bacteria with a fragrance that feels like a tropical getaway for your senses. (sighs) Don't just clean, Lysol clean. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. And today we are talking about sculptor Emma Stebbins and her masterpiece, The Angel of Central Park. Now, I'd like to explore, Maria Therese, a little bit more about Emma's life as an actual artist at this point. We talked a little bit about her training. This was obviously very much an apprenticeship business at the time. But can you can we back up a little bit and can you talk about a little bit how a sculpture is actually made? Because I think it's diff- the way Emma approached it is a little different, too. So how is a sculpture made to begin with? Yes, very few people uh, know and understand that uh, these beautiful uh, marble statues, uh, uh, starting from Canova and all, uh, and then going to all uh, the neoclassical sculptures, were not made completely by the artist. So it started with the artist's idea. So uh, the artist had the idea of how uh, the statue would uh, become. Then he makes clay models, very small clay models to see what it looks like. Then he makes larger clay models. Then they are transformed in plaster models. And at that point, the carvers, the artisans, do the hard work. So they translate the plaster models into the block of marble and it is a very heavy work. So they do 
almost everything using a special technique that precisely transfer the measurement and everything from the model to the marble. And the artist does only the final touches, you know, polishes and, uh, you know, gives the latest uh, chisel uh, touches. Uh, so this is what all of them did, except Emma. Emma was a perfectionist. She wanted to be in control of the whole process. So she did everything herself. That's why Almost all her statues are small. They are around three feet, uh, more or less, uh, tall. The only exception is one that, that you can see in Brooklyn, and we'll talk about it later. And uh, uh, so she was very slow. Uh, she didn't take many commissions, and she didn't care about, uh, you know, marketing too many uh, copies uh, like the other sculptures uh, uh, used to do. I just found that so fascinating that she did all this work herself. And one of the downsides of this is the marble dust that one can breathe. And that actually led to some health problems for her, correct? Absolutely. Unfortunately, she got lung disease from that because breathing for hours and hours, years and years, the marble dust made her very sick. And it was finally the reason of her uh, death. Another important point that you brought up earlier on that I thought was fascinating is this was another reason to go to Italy and to Rome to study sculpture because you had access, number one, to the better quality marble, but also the carvers that could actually handle this and do this work, right? Exactly. Yeah. Now, one of the mysteries in her story, because I alluded earlier, there's always a mystery, was the disappearance, actually, of her first major work, which was the statue of, of the Lotus Eater that I mentioned in my introduction. Can you talk a little bit about this sculpture and how it came to be? And do we have any idea where it is? Uh, yeah, I can tell you, unfortunately, that... Uh, we don't have any idea. Uh, there are a few surviving busts of the Lotus Eater in private collections. And uh, one of the art dealers that I interviewed for the book uh, many years ago bought and then resold uh, one of the busts of uh, the Lotus Eater. But unfortunately, the whole statue is lost. She was very brave and uh, yeah, in, in choosing this uh, theme uh, because she was the first woman sculpture to represent a male nude. Uh, you must remember that at that time, even a female nude was kind of scandalous for the puritanical mentality for, for Americans. In fact, in uh, uh, The Marble Phone, the book that Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote about Rome, at a certain point there is a scene where one uh, um, woman visits uh, a sculptural study and uh, she implores, oh, I don't want to see any more nude statues. They are a disgrace. <laughs> so instead, Emma Stebbins decided to represent a nude male. And uh, um, it is covered only by uh, some flowers and lotus fruits uh, uh, on his private parts. And uh, uh, it was a great success, as you mentioned earlier, um, in her first uh, exhibition. And in fact, uh, she had commissions for some uh, copies. And that's why probably she made some busts also of the Lotus Eater. Now, 
Perhaps the most defining moment in her life personally was the entrance of Charlotte Cushman into her life. And I said a few minutes ago that we would talk about her partner. So Charlotte Cushman, the American stage actress, was also part of this Roman expatriate female artist community, and she became Emma's life partner. So can we start by talking a little bit about who Charlotte Cushman was? Because I'm going to guess many listeners may not be familiar with who she was. Yes, they're not familiar today, but at that time she was so famous and successful. She was born in Boston in 1816, so one year after Emma. And she was the most famous and unclaimed Shakespearean performer, both in female and male roles. She could perform as Lady Macbeth and as well as Romeo and uh, it's amazing if you look uh, at the um, historical uh, uh, drawings of her uh, as Romeo uh, well to us she looks a little ridiculous but uh, uh, for the public uh, they they were enthusiastic especially in London and uh, I mean she was loved because she had a powerful physique, a deep voice, purposeful demeanor. She was very rich also because she was successful, and that's why she bought a house in Rome, and she would spend there the winters and the early spring, and, uh, you know, having some rest between tours all over America and, uh, and England. And she had a salon um, where uh, everybody would go, but especially other female artists, and she was a patron, and she helped them to, I mean, in, in very practical ways she would find clients for them she would you know praise them do publicity she was very generous with her women friends I think it's so fascinating to look at some of these women particularly Charlotte what a powerful strong independent woman that we've just forgotten today or in many corners have forgotten today right yes exactly now what do you think was the attraction between Emma and Charlotte when they first met each other? That's a good question because uh, Emily was quite pretty, I think. Uh, Charlotte was not beautiful. Uh, When the New York Times uh, wrote uh, her obituary, uh, journalists praised uh, her like an actress, but he wrote, and I quote, she was ugly beyond average ugliness, unquote. Uh, Not very kind uh, remark. But Emma Stebbings, uh, then uh, she wrote in uh, Charlotte's biography, quote, there has been a lot of discussion about her personal appearance, but for those who loved her, her appearance was never a problem, unquote. I think they had many things in common. They had passion for their art, ambition to be the best, courage to leave their families and sometimes be against their families, love for being independent financially and from every point of view, independent women, love for beauty, for Italy. They loved Rome, of course. They spent so many months together in Rome. On the other hand, Charlotte was, being an actress, she was a brilliant, you know, she was a very theatrical person. Emma instead was a very reserved person, very shy, but she was as strong as Charlotte when she needed to be. 
Can you give us any sense of, based on your research and and work, what their domestic life together was like in Rome? What was their day-to-day life like? Their day-to-day life uh, was described, is described very well by Emma Stebbins in Charlotte's biography. Probably the best part of the biography is when she talks about uh, their life uh, in uh, Via Gregoriana. They lived in Via Gregoriana, which is a street going down from Trinità dei Monti to Palazzo Barberini. So it was the heart of the artistic uh, scene and uh, um, the, the area where all artists would live. So they had a um, three or fourth floor house, many servants. And it's very funny when uh, Emma uh, describes uh, all the servants from the cook uh, to uh, the majordomo. And uh, um, she loves them, even though they sometimes they steal a little, but they are part of the family. And so they get along very well together. There were many animals also because Char- both Charlotte and Emma loved animals. So they had many horses and they would ride in the campagna. They would do fox hunting with the British aristocrats and the Roman aristocrats. They had also dogs. They loved dogs. They would give once a week a big party. And I describe a typical uh, menu uh, with wild boars uh, cooked uh, in a, in a um, very old uh, traditional way. Oysters uh, probably brought from America, a lot of wine. They were also bon vivant. It sounds like we would have loved going to one of their parties, don't you think? Absolutely. Now, one of the things I loved in your book was you spent some time, of course, in Rome during uh, during research for the book, actually even walking in the footsteps of Emma and Charlotte. So if we go to Rome today, aside from obviously the classical sites, what can we see of their world? Can we see where they live, their studios? What What can we see today? Their house in Via Gregoriana is still there, but of course now it is occupied by uh, private, uh, small private businesses, so you cannot go into it. Uh, the studio was in San Basilio, again uh, in the neighborhood, and uh, uh, it's totally um, uh, gone. You, you cannot see anything, but you could visit uh, some of the museums uh, where Emma would uh, study, and they are Almost, I would say they are the same. And if you're lucky to go there early when uh, not many tourists are around, you will feel the same atmosphere. I, I think that Emma was in awe, admiring all those masterpieces. You can also walk from Piazza del Popolo up to Villa Borghese along the, the gardens. And they used to do that, walking or uh, on a carriage. Um, and it's a beautiful uh, promenade. Um, also, you could go to Café Greco, um, that uh, was the place where all the artists would go to drink and do gossip, uh, you know, and discuss uh, politics and arts and uh, and so on. And it's still there. Yes, Café Greco is still there. It's like the Florian in Venice, you know, <laughs> the same kind of thing. So now Emma and Charlotte's relationship actually hit some turbulence. Can you talk a little bit about that? What happened here? Yes, they met in Rome just after Emma arrived. They met in the winter between 1856 and 57, and it was love at first sight. So they became immediately a couple. But 
but there is a but. Charlotte was an actress and uh, she uh, kept uh, performing and doing tour uh, all around America. And she had so many fans, especially young women. She attracted young women. And one of her fans, ironically with the same name of Emma Stebbings, Emma Crow, she was very young and uh, she started flirting with Charlotte and uh, to cut it short, she became a lover. And uh, Charlotte stayed faithful and decided to uh, mean going on and stay in the relationship with Emma Stebbings, but at the same time, she went on having this love affair very hot, very hot. There are letters between Charlotte and Emma Crow that are really, really hot (laughs) about their nights together in hotels and so on. She, at a certain point, she even, I would say, she organized that her nephew and adopted son, Edwin Ned Cushman got married with Emma Crow so that she could keep this young lover together. She even organized them to move to Rome, uh, got an appointment as vice consul for the nephew. And she, because nor Emma nor Charlotte could have children, having children from the other young lover, Emma Crow, was a kind of, you know, becoming mother herself. Uh, So that was very tough for Emma Stebbings. So Emma knew about all of this, correct? We think? Do we know? I think so, because in some letters, Charlotte uh, warns Emma Crow to be careful because Emma Stebbings is jealous uh, and she doesn't want to disappoint too much Emma Stebbings. So Emma Stebbings knew, and I ask myself often why she put up with this, why she stayed with Charlotte. But she did. She did. She did. And I think that, I mean, Emma Crow was just young, not even beautiful in my opinion. Um, She didn't, I mean, she wasn't educated. She was not an artist. Uh, Her only purpose was to be nice with Charlotte. And I think that Emma Stebbins felt that uh, her relationship with Charlotte was much more important, much more meaningful and deserving to go on. And with that, Maria Teresa and I are going to take a short break and we'll be back to continue the story. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. And today I am talking with Maria Teresa Cometto, the author of the just published book, Emma and the Angel of Central Park. I'm so curious about, um, and you had mentioned this earlier, about other work of Emma's for New York. Now, one, 
was what you mentioned, the statue of Christopher Columbus, which can actually now be seen outside the New York Supreme Court in Brooklyn. But that statue had a long and circuitous history before it was finally publicly installed. Can you share a little bit about this work of Emma's that I'm sure many people don't realize was hers? Yes, she got the commission for uh, the statue from a New Yorker businessman, Marshall Owen Roberts, and she created it in Rome, like all the other works, between 63 and 64. One would wonder why Christopher Columbus, uh, which is quite a controversial uh, um, figure right now, but uh, um, we must remember that uh, at that time, in 19th century, Christopher Columbus was quite a popular theme for American artists because he represented the typical American spirit of adventure, of sailing without being sure where he would uh, arrive. Uh, He was very brave, you know, he started like the underdog and uh, he he persisted and finally he uh, arrived to America. And in fact, uh, if you think of it, the bronze doors of the Rotunda uh, in Washington, D.C. are episodes of the life of Christopher Columbus and they were made by Rogers, another American artist in Rome while Emma was in, in that city. Anyway, the statue arrived in Rome and Roberts wanted to give it as a gift to Central Park. Central Park commissioners were very happy. They said it's a beautiful statue, but for some mysterious reason, they didn't install it in the park. So it finished in a storage somewhere in the park and was neglected until... 1934, when uh, it was rediscovered by a collectionist. And at that point, uh, uh, not the Central Park anymore, but the city decided to put it in a square in Chinatown, in Midtown. But it was not, of course, the right place. The statue was vandalized, uh, neglected. And finally, in 1971, the president of the Italian Historical Society of America succeeded in having the statue moved to to Brooklyn. But personally, I don't like it very much there because it's a big, important square, but it's not a square where people would go to stroll. I would prefer Christopher Columbus on the shore, maybe the shore of Brooklyn, looking at the ocean, you know, with the same expression, which is the expression of... Christopher Columbus, according to Emma, the night before arriving to America, when all the crew uh, was in mutiny and he had only one night to reach his goal. So then, Maria Teresa, then comes the possibility for Emma to create a work for Central Park, The Angel. So can you talk about the actual commission for The Angel? This, again took over 10 years to create, too. This was not something done quickly. And how did that finally find its home where it is today? Yes, indeed, it took 10 years from the the official commission in 1863 to the inauguration in 1873. 
The commission was from Central Park and it's important to stress that it is the only monument, the only statue in Central Park that was commissioned and paid by Central Park. All the other statues that you see around the park were proposed and paid for by private citizens, individuals or associations. But this was very important to the architect of Central Park. It was meant to be the heart of Central Park. And um, it was supposed to, uh, it was meant to uh, celebrate the arrival of the, the fresh water to New York City thanks to the first aqueduct, the Croton Aqueduct that was uh, opened in 1847, only in 1847. And before that, uh, thousands of New Yorkers died because of cholera and many other diseases. So it was, uh, I mean, an important celebration of, uh, of uh, the fresh water coming. Uh, the commissioners, the architects of Central Park uh, had this in mind already around the 1859, 1860. And uh, um, so Emma started thinking of this uh, after her first uh, show that you mentioned earlier in 1861. So full disclosure, one of the commissioners, very important uh, of Central Park was Emma's brother, Henry. So some critics say that uh, it was a form of nepotism that uh, Emma got the commission. I don't agree because uh, she was already famous uh, and praised as one of the best uh, American sculptures uh, at that time when she got the commission. Another important thing is that uh, she knew it had to celebrate the aqueduct. Calvert Vox, the architect of the terrace, uh, um, explained uh, on one of the annual reports uh, of Central Park uh, the meaning of uh, uh, the terrace and the fountain for him. Quote, it should suggest both earnestly and playfully the idea of that central spirit of love that is forever active and forever bringing nature, science, art, summer and winter, youth and age, day and night into harmonious accord, unquote. So Emma had this input, but she was herself who decided to sculpt an angel. Uh, why? We don't know because there is no documents about that. I guess that living in Rome among so many fountains, so many churches with angels, probably it was a kind of an inspiration, the, the theme of the, of the angel. Anyway, she worked for four winters because she worked only in Rome during the winters between 1864 and 1867. In 1869, the model was sent to the Royal Foundry in Munich. Uh, that was the best foundry for artistic work. But a very unlucky uh, thing happened. The war between France and Germany erupted. And so the fountain and the angel uh, got stuck in Germany until 1871. In 1871, finally, 
the statue arrived to New York, but again, another unlucky situation. At that time, the city was had a very corrupted administration. Uh, Tammany Hall, the Tweed uh, uh, thieves, they were called. So uh, there was no money for the park. They didn't care about the park. And the statue stayed there for another year. Finally, in 72, the administration, uh, the, the, the mayor and all the other quote-unquote thieves were fired. So the statue could finally be inaugurated in Central Park in 1873. But because the finance of the city were in very poor state, the inauguration was a very low-profile event. Uh, there was a small orchestra, no official uh, speeches, and uh, so it was a very understated event. And the funny thing, I discovered reading the journals uh, of, uh, of that period, the public, uh, the people uh, celebrating uh, this event were mostly Germans, because the, the Germans were very proud of the fact that uh, the fountain was cast in Munich. So, Maria Teresa, can you share a little bit about what is important about Emma's angel? There's some interesting debate on whether the face of the angel is actually male or female. Can you comment on that? It's a fascinating discussion. Yeah, it's fascinating. In Italian, we say that uh, when we discuss uh, impossible uh, topics, uh, we talk about the sex of the angels. <laughs> and uh, the sex of Emma's angel was very uh, was an argument. Uh, some critics uh, uh, wrote on uh, newspapers that uh, uh, the face uh, looked uh, uh, feminine. Others said it was masculine. Most of the newspapers, the critics loved the angel, but, for example, the critics on the New York Times, that was not the most important newspaper at that time, definitely didn't like it. They uh, wrote, and I mentioned, the head is distinctly a male head of a classical, commonplace, meaningless beauty. The breasts are feminine, the rest of the body is in part male and in part female. It is an absurd mosaic of the two sexes. I think it's very sexist, <laughs> this, uh, this uh, uh, criticism. It is true that the Angela is absolutely androgyn. And it is true that Emma, in the program of the inauguration, calls the angel a woman. In the program, she wrote... Every day, an angel descends for us, and to remind us of this, the golden bronze angel of the fountain stands forever blessing the waters, which rise and move at her presence. She bears in her left hand a bunch of lilies, emblems of purity, and wears across her breast the crossed bands of the messenger angels." and so on. So she considers uh, the angel as a woman, maybe because uh, she thought of the healing uh, meaning of the waters uh, and uh, the cure of the waters was very popular among women at that time and uh, curing uh, the uh, sick is uh, considered a women's uh, job. Also, maybe she thought uh, the angel is a tribute to her companion, Charlotte, who performed both male and female roles. At the end of the day, I think it's a very modern, very contemporary 
idea of uh, an angelic statue that could be seen in many different ways. Uh, and I think that art is beautiful because, uh, you know, it uh, raises questions uh, and, uh, I mean, it has a mysterious side. Well, that's what art is supposed to do, right? Yeah. Always create discussion and offer a new perception. Can you share a little bit about Emma and Charlotte's life after the installation of the angel in 1873? As I was reading your book, I found this very interesting because this was all new to me. Of course, America is really entering the Gilded Age at this point. But also Emma and Charlotte, they had homes in Newport, also in the Berkshires of Massachusetts. These were very Gilded Age enclaves. What was their life like living there and, and certainly in the years after the angel? Yes, in the 73, when the angel was inaugurated, they had already left Rome. They left Rome in 1870 because in 69, Charlotte discovered that she had breast cancer. So she left Rome and they came back to America trying to find a cure. And unfortunately, that was not possible. And in America, they had in part a quieter life. Emma stopped working as an artist because she devoted herself to her companion, while Charlotte kept performing, not anymore in uh, full plays, but she would do dramatic readings or reading excerpts uh, from uh, plays. They spent some time in New York City, where Emma had still her brother Henry. Charlotte built a beautiful mansion in Newport, and the architect was Richard Morris Hunt, uh, the very famous architect of the Gilded Age. He um, designed the facade of the Metropolitan Museum of Art and uh, um, many of the mansions on Fifth Avenue. And uh, unfortunately, the house is lost. I went there, but uh, couldn't find any trace of it. Emma, on the other hand, uh, uh, being uh, more, you know, uh, understated, she bought a, a smaller cottage in Lenox, in the Berkshires Hills. She thought that the good era of the hills would benefit uh, Charlotte. So they, they would spend the summer in Newport and having probably parties, you know, uh, along the ocean at other friends' houses. And they would spend the fall in the hills of Berkshires. Now, Emma herself dies in 1882 here in New York, just as the Gilded Age is really gathering steam. Do you have any thoughts about the end of her life? Do you think that... Emma was pleased to know that her angel was standing there in Central Park at the end of her life. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, of course, of course. Unfortunately, we don't have a diary uh, by Emma. We don't have letters because she destroyed all the letters she exchanged with Charlotte. We only have a few letters uh, um, uh, between Emma and her friend, the sculptor Anne Whitney. So she even thought uh, towards the end of her life to do again some uh, work to 
work again as a sculpture, but uh, I guess she was very weak. Uh, she had this lung disease. She tried to go to a spa, to a sanatorium in Dunsville, upstate New York, and uh, she writes in a very funny way about this guru, this health guru, trying to heal everything uh, uh, just with the water. <laughs> and so she, did, she, she couldn't uh, work again as an artist. Maria Teresa, I must ask you my trademark Gilded Gentleman question, and that is if Emma Stebbins were sitting here today at the table with us after all your research into her life, what is it that you would really like to ask her? Well, if I could ask Emma a question, like if uh, she were here with us, probably I would ask her if there is a special place in Rome, a fountain or a church, or if there is a painting or a statue that inspired Emma to create the Angel of the Waters, because this is an unsolved mystery. And so I I hope that she would lead me us to find this special place. Gosh, Maria Teresa, there are so many more aspects of Emma's story that we could discuss, but I think we've really dipped below the surface of what so many people know today. Thank you so very much for joining me here today. Thank you, Carl, for having me. It was a great experience, and I hope that uh, our listeners uh, uh, would enjoy it. I, I'm sure they will, and I'm ready for your next book. So will you come back when you do your next book? I would love to have you back on The Gilded Gentleman. <laughs> Absolutely. I do encourage all my listeners to buy Maria Teresa's extraordinary book, Emma and the Angel of Central Park, for even more on the story, which, believe me, we only just began to cover today. It is available wherever books are sold. And to my listeners, thank you for joining me for another episode of The Gilded Gentleman. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media, and this episode was edited and produced by Kieran Gannon. To stay up to date on upcoming podcasts, special tours, and events, make sure to sign up for the Gilded Gentleman monthly newsletter, and you can do that at thegildedgentleman.com. I invite my listeners to become patrons of the show at patreon.com slash thegildedgentleman. Your support helps me to manage the costs of researching, writing, creating, and producing the show. I couldn't do it without you. And I'll see you soon. After all... What's life without a little glint of gold?